Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Mirens. This week we are joined by Adrian Smith, one of the founding partners of Batista Smith Migration Law Firm, a Canadian immigration law firm based out of Toronto. The topic that we are discussing is mandamus applications. A mandamus application is an application to the Federal Court of Canada for ruling to compel IRCC to, in layman's terms, do something. As IRCC is increasing and experiencing significant delays in processing applications during COVID-19, and as the word mandamus appears to spread through internet forums as a possible solution to these delays, all three of us, and I'm sure all immigration lawyers, have been getting inquiries about whether we could file a mandamus application to speed up someone's application. So what is a mandamus application? What is it used for? What are the advantages of it? What are the disadvantages? These are the questions that we answer on today's episode. As always, if you can, if you want to contact me, you can reach me at stephen.murens at larley.com. It's L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. You can reach Deanna, my co-host, at deanna at mccraylaw.com, M-C-C-R-E-A-L-A-W dot C-O-M. And you can reach Adrian at smith at migrationlawgroup.com, and that's all one word. I hope you enjoy today's episode.
But yeah, I don't know about you, but I feel like mandamus, even if people aren't like certain of what the test is, there's a lot of inquiries about them. And it's yeah. retained this almost like mythical status as like a way to speed up application processing. Yeah. I mean, I think the number one question I get when people contact me is they say, wait, did you say you want to litigate against the government to get a decision? I don't want to piss off the government. That's mm. like the number one thing that people say is they say, like, what are the repercussions when yeah. I do file a mandamus? Yeah, for sure. And those same people sometimes will file 10 GCMS requests on their own (laughs) and be like, I don't want to piss off the government, though, by filing mandamus. I just want to contact them every week for the next 5,200 weeks um, because I think that uh, the court action might really piss off the government. Yeah. And also, you know, not the stream of 20 to 30 inquiries through the web form saying the same thing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, those are difficult inquiries to answer because, I mean, um, all I can say is that like anecdotally, I've never seen there like be any evidence that the mandamus has caused a negative consequence to the subsequent decision. But like, um, you know, uh, I have like a pretty lawyerly kind of answer that like, you know, it's due process and you're entitled to file a mandamus application and all that sort of thing. Um, I don't know. How do you answer that question generally, Adrian? I mean, I say exactly what you said. I say, um, you know, I've never seen any evidence of any kind of repercussion from the government. Mm -hmm. And I think you can also, what I do is I speak about my experience and the response that I get from the government when I file these mandamus applications. Mm -hmm. I never get a sense of frustration. Like I never get a sense from, DOJ that they're like, why are you filing this mandamus? But I think that's also because obviously we screen our mandamus applications to make sure we're not filing an express entry application and then doing a mandamus three months later. Yeah, exactly. Doing that initial screening is, is really critical in keeping your kind of reputation of, no, this is an appropriate case for mandamus. For sure. Well, this is a really interesting point of entry, I think, because um, the screening, I mean, there's two, there's two things that arise for me on this. The first one is that like, um, I think that the preservation of one's reputation is just like a really interesting conversation because like, I, first of all, think that like, um, I very, I very cautiously, um, guard my reputation. Like I don't file frivolous and I think that like good litigators, and I would say I definitely, of course, hold both of you in that camp that like, I like very carefully, I'm like, okay, well, is this, does this pass muster for me? Like, does this like pass the sniff test? Does this really strike me as being a credible claim? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a lot to be said about this, but also in terms of mandamus in particular, what I would have filed as a credible mandamus today feels very different than what I would have filed as a credible mandamus two years ago. And I'm just interested in whether both of you feel the same way about that. Go on. I'm not quite sure. I don't know. Like it feels to me like two years ago, like what, sort of what has struck me is like a mandamus is like, it felt like the courts were like, it had to be like six or 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that standard has a bit come down in the last little while. Like, like now um, if something 
has just like, I, do, I don't feel like it needs to be six or eight years for me to be like, okay, I'm going to go with a mandamus here now. Like, I think now if it's like, you know, uh, two years and I haven't heard anything and there's been no movement now, I feel like I would be, I feel like I could file credibly a mandamus application and say like something has gone awry. Like, I think that now I, I don't feel like it would hurt my reputation to say I'm going to file a mandamus application when nothing's happened on an application and Mm -hmm. there's something truly like somebody's interests are truly being prejudiced by there being a non-action now um I just feel like the the jurisprudence is a bit more like um it's a bit less protective of the department and saying you know you know, you have to give them some, some more time. I don't know. I just feel like there's a bit more room yeah. for, for somebody to file a mandamus when just one or two years, let's say, have gone by and nothing's happened. No, yeah, I think, Diana. Oh, sorry, Steve. Oh, no, go for it. I think I have the exact same sense as you that I think maybe more than two or three years ago, if you were filing mandamus, it was like for a ministerial relief application that took 15 years to get a decision. But I think like what's changed for me is the IRCC's processing timelines on their website. They actually have been updating them a lot more. Like I, mm-hmm. I see the website as, you know, the IRCC has the ability at any time to change that timeline. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go by the timeline. Of course we have our, timeline that we go by in our office of how long things take our own little mini sample size Mm -hmm. but if the government is telling me that a cc application is going to take six months but in reality we know right now it's taking 10 months in my mind i'm thinking well why don't you just update the website so for me a credible mandamus is actually anything above and beyond the ircc's published timelines And I was a lot more conservative with filing mandamus applications before because I never really trusted what the IRCC website said. But -hmm. I think they are a lot, it is a lot more accurate now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd sort of forgotten about that, that maybe that was the key difference is that like two years ago, remember there was like no single standard for how long things took. It was all like visa office dependent or Mm -hmm. like there was no one single standard as to like how long, I mean, even when you thought about like how long was it going to take to process a federal skilled worker application prior to express entry, like it was, it was measured in years and not in months. And so, um, you know, there was no sense that like if things took, a year that that was an, ex- an inordinate amount of time, you know? So I think that there, that there has, um, there has been a real kind of reining in of what is a reasonable time frame. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, we've sort of gone into all this without even defining what mandamus actually is. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Um, yeah. Like just on to, so I was thinking about your question and I think the other thing that sort of changed especially during the pandemic, is that um, there appears to have been a little bit of abandonment of first come, first serve. And there's also unbelievably vague answers to the point that they're non-answers about why a file is being delayed. Um, And I've kind of viewed it more as a multiple of the, like, stated processing time. So we did a mandamus letter last year, two years ago, for an ETA application And it had only been like six months, um, but they had received just generic 
you know, your file is in process, rest assured, it's going to be looked at. And when we sent the mandamus letter, we've said, you know, the stated processing time for an ETA is two minutes. We are now 88,000 times that at six months. Um, and it, you know, worked when we got their ETA approved shortly after the mandamus demand letter. And maybe we can, as we can discuss in a bit, what's also changed is, as I think you alluded to, Deanna, is that the mandamus requests do produce action. Mm. Um, but maybe, Adrian, I think uh, you wanted to talk first about just delays in general that IRCC is currently experiencing in the overall, I guess, system or state of, not state of the union, but state of the IRCC system uh, that we're currently in. I mean, I think it's a good segue because it kind of goes back to what Deanna was saying with, you know, before when applications would take so long, then all of us immigration lawyers would just say, oh, another application, another spousal application is taking three years. Like, it's almost like we adapted to the immigration delays that we came to expect with the IRCC. So, you know, and even applicants, I think, were the same. I think applicants would say, we understand that the immigration process is going to take a long time. It takes a long time in the United States and it takes a long time in the UK. So there was like just this general expectation, I think, from clients and from immigration lawyers that the system just isn't a quick system. And I think, you know, with with COVID, what has really happened is, you know, these, these delays and this need for a response and our client expectations and our expectations, I feel like the energy from my clients is people kind of hit a wall and they said, you know, I know COVID has delayed things, but what about the two years before COVID? And then all of a sudden that extra year is what really starts to piss them off. So I think what I'm seeing from my clients is I'm seeing almost like an expectation of, no, I should get a decision on my application. I filed the application before the pandemic the government just can't keep saying that this is the reason that my application has been delayed. And I think same reason for us immigration lawyers, we're all just kind of like, yes, there was a six month period where, you know, so many decisions weren't being made in so many different business lines. But after those six months, I think we all just lost our patience. And I think for me, the turning point was in the fall when things kind of started opening up um, and I still wasn't seeing decisions. So I think that's where I started talking to clients about doing a mandamus application. And I felt like there was a real appetite to do them. And when I first started doing them, I thought, well, obviously the government is just going to use COVID as an explanation. And I've been really surprised to see that the government, it's almost like they've accepted Yes, we have delayed so many different immigration applications and these clients shouldn't be waiting. They just don't have the capacity. I think intake has also gone up so much yeah. um, that there just aren't the number of decision makers that are needed. Do you uh, distinguish when you're considering these between a paper file and an online file? So for example, like it seems whole streams of paper submitted applications I don't even know if someone's gone in and opened any of the envelopes 
And I could see there being more resistance to the government on a file like, or from the government on a file like that than say an online application. I wouldn't say that I've seen that difference, but where I have seen a difference is with the in-Canada applicants. So if someone is in Canada, then I find it much easier to get a decision right away versus say an overseas federal skilled worker application, an overseas spousal sponsorship. I think that's where, and when you go back to Steve, like talking about paper-based versus online applications, so much of the paper-based applications are, you know, happen at that visa office stage. So I think that's where the delay has been, the delay that can't be, you know, resolved. I think um, where I've sort of kind of come full circle around mandamus and the pandemic is that, you know, businesses, for example, um, there was a certain period of time where like, you know, there was businesses, like everyone had to pivot and adapt and like figure out how to work from home. And I think that there is an expectation that we have of the government that like, okay, we get it. Like, yep, office closures and, you know, work from home and we need to, we needed to figure it out and we expect you to figure it out too. (laughs) And so, so So now the time is up, like now you got to figure it out too. And so the expectation is not that like, it's going to be seamless or perfect, but like now the time is up, you have to have figured out how to work from home and you have to have figured out how to like, let your officers work from home. And um, there is at least an expectation of fairness. And so if you're saying like, this is going to be slower, that's fine. But like, it has to also be done fairly. So like, if you're now saying like things are slower, fine. But like, if you're going to prioritize one group of applicants over another, like that has to be fair. Like if it's like, now you're saying that like, like, and so when you're seeing disparities, like if all of a sudden, you know, certain types of applications are going to be slower than other types of applications. I'm going to say why. (laughs) Yeah. And so if it's because there's like an actual travel restriction, okay, I get it. But if it's just that like you're prioritizing the high skilled workers over the low skilled, then I say why, you know? And so I think that's where mandamus has become a very effective tool in terms of like, um, it's not just okay to say, well, it's COVID. And then it's like, okay, I get it. But then how come those, how come you're inviting more of those types of people and those ones are processing, like, why are the TRs to PRs, those new categories processing in two months, but those other people that are still waiting that have been pending for a year and a half, why are those still processing? So, mm-hmm. um, so I think it's like become this kind of like, this tool for equalizing those disparities. Yeah. Yeah. And it it goes back to what Steve said with the first in first out policy. Like, I feel like what we've seen is an abandonment of that and a prioritizing of, okay, which application can be decided the fastest and the easiest. And those are the ones that are going to get prioritized. Mm -hmm. Like that new, you know, our pathway program. It's interesting because if you if you look at that example, if you're a convention refugee and then you've applied for as a protected person, it's taking you 23 months to get your PR. Exactly. You Perfect example. Refugee, and you applied under the that program, that temporary you know public policy program, you're getting your PR within six months. Yeah. Yeah. 
To be fair to them, they've reached the point where they're saying basically that every application now is being prioritized, which of course means that none of them are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So why don't we jump to uh, what is mandamus? Yeah, so um, typically what what people call mandamus, um, what I do during a consultation for a mandamus is after I explain what a mandamus is, I actually tell people this isn't making sense. Just Google writ of mandamus and hopefully reading the words will make a little bit more sense than me explaining it. Because when I say, when I, you know, try to use simple language that it's like a judicial remedy that allows us to compel the government to give us a decision. There's just words that are in there, like compelling the government to give us a decision. They're like, wait, what does that mean? How are you going to force the government to do something? So, you know, that's kind of like the, the theory behind what the judicial remedy is, is you're compelling the government to give a decision. What I always distinguish to between what we talked about earlier, which is it's not a positive decision. It's just a decision or it's a step in the process. Like Steve mentioned, maybe it's a procedural fairness letter. Maybe it's a request for an immigration medical exam. But, you know, if you want to use really simple terms, then it's lighting a fire under the government to get something happening. That's basically how I describe it. It gets a stuck application unstuck. Yeah. Yeah. And what is uh, that process? I mean, that process always starts with what are the processing timelines and the program that you've applied under? So if you have applied, let's say, as a CEC applicant and the government website says it takes six months to process your application, then how long has your application taken? Has it taken more than the six months? And we also know that that processing timeline is in 80% of cases and the other 20% are the more complex cases. So in that initial process of figuring out whether a mandamus is right for an applicant, you want to figure out, is there anything complicated on this file that the government is going to be able to reasonably justify the delay? So you want to kind of go through the timeline on when the application was filed, when was the medical done, has security been passed, is there anything complicated on the file? So that's the kind of first step is doing that initial assessment. Then with the second step, what you're doing is if you decide that all of those requirements are met, then you're drafting the demand letter, which is basically a written request to the government explaining that timeline and saying, either give us a decision or at least give us a timeline on when you're going to make your decision. Because that would actually satisfy the mandamus requirements. If the government says you know, here's the reason why we've delayed things. It's going to take another six months. I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait. That would actually be sufficient. Like, I think I would have a hard time litigating that if I got a response like that from the government. But most often I don't get any response. So then we move on to the next stage, which is filing the application for leave, filing that initiating document to the federal court where you set out the same timeline. You tell the court, You know, the IRCC has not provided any kind of reasonable justification for the delay in my client's case. 
and we're pursuing a mandamus. Now, at that stage, things can kind of go, for me at least, I don't know, Deanna or Stephen, your practice is what you do, but I'm a huge proponent if I have a really strong case that I reach out to my friend on the other side, speak with DOJ early, I get a sense of what their client is thinking. Do we really want to waste the court's resources? Do we want to waste my client's money? Do we want to waste DOJ's time in responding to the application? So I kind of try to get a sense from DOJ on what their client is thinking about whether we could settle it early. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if settlement isn't possible, then we move on to perfecting the application record, which is where we actually do our legal arguments, um, setting out why my client's case meets the mandamus test. Yeah, that's yeah. my practice as well. And my last few cases have resolved themselves right then and there. At the DOJ stage or at the demand letter stage? At the DOJ stage, but before perfecting leave. Yeah, I've actually only gotten to the perfecting leave stage once, and it was on a CBSA decision to seize a passport, and they refused to return my client's passport pending an investigation, and then we got an email at one point saying that the person who was, uh, you know, doing the investigation was, had been indefinitely assigned to another major file and they wouldn't be looking at returning my client's passport until they were back from their indefinite assignment elsewhere. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And that one we actually had to perfect um, the record on. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, the and then for the most part, I find the mandamus letters themselves to be very effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I actually, I think maybe out of one out of every five, I'll actually file the mandamus application itself because, for whatever reason, um, the mandamus demand letters themselves seem to produce a result. Interesting. I've never found the demand letter <laughs> effective in itself. Um, yeah, that's interesting because whether it's by CSE or by email, they seem uh, like I've noticed those. See, I, and it's interesting to hear that it hasn't been the same experience. That uh, I find they work really well. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would say I'd say it's more like a one in ten situation for me, not one in five. Mm-hmm. Where you have to go to federal court or where? Where I have to actually file the mandamus and, you know, enter settlement discussions and that kind of thing. Yeah. So you, then you find it used like the demand letters themselves to usually work as well? Yeah, probably 10% of the time the demand letter itself works. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So I don't know like why there'd be that distinction, but. Um, you must have a really good demand letter. Yeah. You just have to put and as an attachment in your CSE size 76 font mandamus so that it ah. actually gets, uh, I don't know. Um, but I know people who use them as well for ESDC um, and all sorts of situations mm. uh, where mm. the demand letters seem to work. The So as far as um, when it comes to perfecting the app like so what are the, is it a, you file the application for mandamus and what is the actual test 
in order to succeed in an application? So um, the test. Hmm. There's some really old case law Hmm. that I think it's from, let me see, 2003. The test hasn't itself hasn't changed for such a long time. Like a writ of mandamus is one of those like, you know, really old judicial remedies that's been around forever and ever. Yeah. Um, so the jurisprudence itself sets up the test saying basically there has to be a public legal duty to act. So the first thing is you want to go to the legislation, find out if the minister, or the immigration department, whoever it is, has a public duty to actually make a decision on your application. Yeah. I think in most immigration decisions, most, that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Most immigration applications, they have to. Um, then you're looking at, okay, what's the duty that's owed to the applicant? So exactly what are they deserving of when they apply? And we know that that's a decision. That's all they're looking for. The next part of the test is there has to be a clear right to the performance of the duty. So what that means is that the applicant themselves has certain steps they have to take in order to actually meet the test, which we went through before, which is filing that demand letter, um, asking for, you know, a reasonable amount of time or, or sorry, giving the government a reasonable amount of time to respond to that demand letter. And then if the government doesn't respond, there's either that, delay that you can point to that's implied and then what you're looking for is you're looking at is that unreasonable so that's when you're checking the processing timelines to see if it's above and beyond what the government says yeah i think there's a key point in there which is like when we've been talking about these demand letters that we send that's an actual like requirement of uh filing mandamus yes i don't know about deanna or steve if you get asked this but if you do have a client that or uh, who has either on their own or through another representative already sent a number of requests asking for an update on their file, does that satisfy the requirement under the test? Or do you prefer to draft your own demand letter that's a little bit more formal and meets all the test requirements really clearly? I always draft my own and Part of the reason that I always draft my own is I always, and I can't remember because it's been a while since I actually read the test for mandamus, but I always um, feel like you need to specifically articulate what is the harm caused by the delay. And I can't remember why I think that. Mm. Um, So, and I always find that the requests don't, the ones that they've done on their own or with alternate counsel don't specifically articulate that. Um, And so I always say, like, for example, if it's like a delayed PR card or a delayed decision on um, on a refugee claim or something like that, I want to say what the because, you know, people will say, well, you know, in the meantime, they've got, you know, the ability to work. They've got all this. But I want to explain what the specific hardship is caused by that interim state, that limbo. And if it means like they can't you know, their children can't go to school, like whatever the specific hardship is, I want that articulated because I think that that does come up sometimes in the negotiation or in the litigation, if it were to happen, that like to explain that the 
that the hiatus is harmful. Yeah. Um, and so um, that's the part that I often find in the self-drafted one is missing. Mm. So we uh, always draft our own. Um, and I wasn't joking when I said 72 font, like I'm looking at one right now. And so the top third of the Word document is notice of possible mandamus application. Oh, really? Federal court. Yeah. Oh. And it's the top third of the page. <laughs> so like, uh, if they that open the attachment, awful. it'll be clear yeah. what it is. I um, like that. Notice yeah. of possible mandamus. And it's, I like that, Steve. Yeah, the actual text is uh, short, but it like um, basically just says that but here's the standard, here's the delay, we've sent these requests, we've gotten vague responses. And then the last paragraph is, uh, you know, we're going to file by this uh, day if we don't receive a response. What has sort of changed kind of frustratingly is the longer that, like we used to request ice think it was like you know provide some response in two weeks or 30 days mm -hmm. but now that it takes like cse sometimes seem to take 30 days just to be read at all that period's gotten pushed back a bit just because i mm. mean like they won't have actually opened the mandamus demand letter for 30 days mm -hmm. um but yeah like what so do you we, consider a reasonable period of the ask Mm -hmm. uh, yeah so like the reasonable period for the ask has become longer and longer because of how long it takes sometimes for them to just open a CSE um, and yeah so that so we always uh, send our own um, demand letter and we typically like just from a retainer perspective won't send the letter unless everything's ready to go on a mandamus application so that it's filed the day the deadline hits or passes or whatever right um yeah so back to the case law on this test so that's step three step four but actually before we, yeah. we leave the subject of the of the demand letter um one thing that i remember that i used to fret over a lot as a baby lawyer was this question of like you know that thing you learn in law school or pldc about like the danger of threatening future uh um, future consequences, you know, like I know that it doesn't, I know now that it doesn't apply to future legal action, but did that usually used to cause you pause when you were earlier in your career, the idea of like threatening consequences, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Case law demand. Of course, of course. <laughs> I just know, I know that every junior that's ever worked in our firm has been like, can I do this? Because, you know, like it's, uh, they're like, everyone always frets over that sentence of like threatening to do something in the future. Yeah, it's, it's easier when it's a, it's interesting, because I feel like if I no, even in the CBSA case, where I knew the officer's name, I, I was gonna say that when you don't know the name, or like, it's just going into a bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. But I guess uh, because the case law demands it, that never had crossed my mind. Hmm. Yeah, I think when you have a strong case and you, you know, you know that your client's case has been unreasonably delayed, then, you know, I have no problem with using that seemingly harsh language when it's appropriate. Uh -huh. Yeah. And like the demand letters don't say like they don't like I've just in scanning it doesn't have like the word you have delayed like it's a very passive I guess it's the passive voice kind of it's like here's been the delay like it's almost boring matter of fact and then like we're gonna file mandamus um I do kind of cringe when I see sometimes you see counsel 
or applicants getting like really aggressive um, and, you know, starting to like name call the IRCC officers <laughs> and stuff. And you're like, okay, like that kind of stuff I find where people are way more aggressive in their writing to be a bit more cringeworthy than like, okay, we're going to file a court action if we don't like right. get a response. Mm-hmm. Okay, carry on. I like your, I like your title. I'm going to use it for sure. <laughs> That's from ESDC. That was what I, so the size 76 font was a, the local Vancouver manager at Service Canada. And I said, what do you do if you want to get an LMIA? Then it was LMO uh, expedited. And they said, oh, just put that you want it expedited in 76 fonts so that we see it on the fax machine. And that's like carried over and like stuck with me. That's awesome. Amazing. So generally that's interesting to hear, Steve, that you're kind of giving the government more time to respond because you know that it may take at least 30 days to even open the correspondence. Um, my practice generally has been always to wait two weeks. So mm-hmm. you're kind of making me take pause in maybe, you know, the higher response to your demand letters is because you're kind of waiting a little bit longer at that initial stage yeah. to start the litigation. I've and been then I would file well. the responses like, well, yeah, because then that might explain the difference because uh, they just haven't, if it's possible, they haven't opened the CSE by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, if the response to the CSE, which it's never actually been, was just, you know, oh, rest assured we are taking all blah, 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 then like, then I wouldn't wait the 30 days. Like if that response came in 10 days or 20 days, I would just file. Mm-hmm. Um, but just as the CSE delays themselves have become a thing, uh, it's just pushed back how long I like request or how long the deadline is. Mm-hmm. That's a good tactic. Yeah. So we were on step three. With step four, um, what you're looking at is you're looking at, is there anything else that we can do to actually get a decision? So there's this requirement that there can't be any other remedy for the applicant in getting a decision. And again, I feel like almost every part of this test, it's, it's so simple to meet the mandamus test, which is maybe why you know, we're using them so much recently. Um, And then the next step is whatever decision is made or whatever order is made in request that has to have some sort of practical effect, which basically just means, um, you know, if you do get a decision, is something practical going to happen? Which for all of our clients, when you get a decision, usually that means being able to travel to Canada or, you know, getting your work permit or getting your permanent residence. So again, that part of the test is so straightforward to me. And then the last two is that there's no equitable bar to the relief being sought and that on a balance of convenience, the mandamus should lie in favor of the applicant. And again, the meeting these two parts of the test really kind of flows from the other parts, I would say. Yeah, and that's, I think... Would that be where most of the DOJ response comes in as to like queue jumping or there's a legitimate reason for the delay? I mean, I, I've never had the like queue jumping argument 
been put to my client as a reason not to agree to the mandamus. Maybe their client thinks that they think that they shouldn't be jumping the queue and they don't agree with the mandamus. Um, But yeah, I would say typically if there is a response that doesn't result in settlement, I often don't know what the decision is. It's often just, I don't have instructions to proceed with settlement which almost makes it worse. Like I feel like at, you know, kind of privileged to settlement discussion stages, that's where we should say, you know, pick up the phone and call your friend and say, you know what, the applicant actually was requested to do the IMEs three times and they haven't responded. Or if there is a reason for the delay in that sense, I think that there should be a little bit more information given at the settlement stage. I wouldn't say that I get a lot of information. It's just, I have instructions to settle or I don't. Um, so if the instructions are not to settle, then at that stage, that's where we decide, okay, do we want to keep going with this litigation? And do we need to really think hard about whether it's worth court time and court resources to proceed with the application at that point? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I'd say the ref, like when you read the federal court jurisprudence, the refusals, I think the main like takeaway from the jurisprudence on dismissals is if it's related to a security concern or some mm-hmm. sort of a police background check, it's very hard to argue that IRCC should skip, <laughs> like just skip the security background check. Now, that yeah. being said, it is worth like, there are other cases where it's, um, and we've had it before, where we were told that there was a CSIS investigation. And when we contacted CSIS, it, they actually responded and said, we've concluded our investigation months ago, and it was just a communication issue with IRCC. But the actual, like, if there are ongoing background checks, um, like, that's a scenario where mandamus would be very hard. It is hard. I do think there's some there's some good federal court cases though that say you also can't just use a security reason as like a you know fail safe for delaying the application definitely. Mm-hmm. So you know the the case law I think kind of cuts both ways, but you do want to make sure that there's a little bit more of a justification for the security background checks or like you said steve that like at least that an investigation is ongoing and something's happening 
um, to justify the delay. Yeah. So have you have you dealt with some uh, mandamus negotiations around security screening? I have, not in a long time, um, but typically I find it really hard at the settlement stage to get any mm-hmm. kind of information about why they're yeah. in a delay at security. Like I find in those cases, um, you almost always have to perfect the application record to then, you know, maybe get an affidavit from the officer who's doing the investigation or to get some kind of more detailed response from the government. Yeah, understood. That makes sense. Yeah. It just, it's important that I think just in terms of knowing how to manage your client's expectation from the outset, um, because a lot of the time when you're doing those initial consultations, I find um, the client just wants to know at what point they can reasonably expect um, to get a settlement. And so I would just say, if I were trying to take a mandamus application on, like if I were being retained, I would not anticipate a negotiation and a settlement prior to leave. I would just say like, that's, that's Mm -hmm. almost a non-starter. I don't think that that would be something to reasonably expect. Um, So it's good to know that I'm not telling people that for no reason, but I just wouldn't think that I would have any information whatsoever at that point. Um, uh, Just uh, based on what I've seen in the case law, that was just, uh, but I've never tried it, but, um, but yeah, uh, um, that makes good sense that, but it's, it's good to know that at least by the time that you perfect, you get at least some information. Mm-hmm. Like I know my colleague did one last late last year and she perfected the application record. And then when it came time for DOJ to justify that delay, mm-hmm. it was at that point where a decision was actually made and, and the couple got their, their permanent residence status. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think I think with with security, you're, you're right. It's it's very difficult just to predict what's going to happen. Right. You may have to go. Yeah. To- right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that we do see that those are harder ones and that there is more of a shelter in the sense that the courts won't interfere like willy nilly, um, that they will be more protective of the government's right to conduct a thorough investigation, but that it's not a perfect protection in the sense that like they can't just go on forever and ever. But um, but that it's still worth doing when the when the, the delay is truly inordinate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like when we look at security issues and delay, I always point to, you know, the case law on ministerial relief applications, which as we know are the immigration applications that I think we can all say take the longest out of all the programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if the chief justice of the federal court has said that the minister of public safety shouldn't take more than four years to make a decision for me, that's like the outer limits of any immigration application because if a ministerial relief application has to be made within four years, then it's almost like with other applications, you can shrink the timeline on when they should get a decision. Well, ministerial relief applications, I have to say, they're like one sort of thing that I just kind of feel like it exists on the books, but it doesn't feel like it's an actual thing for people in reality. Like it doesn't feel like a true remedy in the sense that it's something that people um, can use in the sense that it's like, you know what I mean? Because it's like, 
you know, and it's, and this is one of those things that it's like, it's bandied around in the jurisprudence. Well, like, oh yes, this is a terrible consequence, but you always have ministerial relief, but unless it's being actually administered in a true way, then it's not an actual thing as a, as a, as like the ameliorative effect of that remedy doesn't actually exist in the hands of the person <laughs> if it's not actually ever going to be granted. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, it's, the, yeah. it's the last resort, right? It's one of those things where, you know, it's so hard to get a positive decision, but often people just don't have any other choice. And even knowing how long it's going to take to, to get a decision on the application, again, people just don't have a choice. Yeah, but I feel like we should explain quickly, like when we say ministerial, yeah. if we've gone into a very well, we've specific We've talked about category. it a couple of times, but um, we've a little, always said- Yeah, it's not like, yeah. I just want to make sure people understand, it's not like, this is a type it's of- not humanitarian limited, yeah, yeah, to people who are inadmissible for national security, organized crime. Um, I saw the government's actually doing consultations right now to- let CBSA return them if they're incomplete, the same way IRCC can return family class or express entry. Um, there's ongoing consults just to make the process even less accessible. But, wow. and so going back to what I like, I think someone who's listening and contemplating mandamus is probably asking themselves so. Should I do it or should I not? So let's go back to that first part of like the threshold for how long the delay has been. Um, Like, is that, would you say that's your determinative or, um, and I'll give like two specific scenarios, I guess. Someone inside Canada whose express entry application is at how many points past say, and it's complicated because of COVID, but maybe this does factor in six months or that little blue bar reaching the stage where it says your application is taking long versus someone in India who's saying, you know, why isn't my work permit approved? Um, and does the fact that the visa office is closed impact whether you would file that mandamus or recommend Just note, there's no more blue bar on the express entry. They took away the blue bar, I guess. Because oh, I thought they took it away and then brought it back. Like, it's has gone. it gone again? I just checked today. Yeah. yeah. The blue bar being the thing that tells you how far beyond the processing standard your application yeah, is. The blue bar, they I used to tell it. It wasn't a blue bar that said, like, all it was was how far into six months are you? If you can't calculate that on your own there's a little blue bar that like will tell you. (laughs) So I love the blue bar because I felt like I would look at it and I thought if that's not a legitimate expectation on when a decision is going to be made. Uh Um, So I wouldn't. You loved it. They decided that they hated it when all of a sudden more than, I think that when you said the thing about how 80% were being decided within six months. I think when it got to the point that it was more like 20% were being decided in six months and they hated the blue bar too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Steve, I mean, to go back to your question, I think you're right that, you know, we have this kind of insider knowledge, I think as immigration lawyers, that someone from the outside would say, oh, okay, it's only supposed to be six months to process my application. Let's say you're self-represented. 
when should you actually file the mandamus? So what I've been doing, and this is not any kind of, you know, legal test that's been developed, but I basically gave the government kind of six months after March, 2020 to figure out their own house. So get their staff up to, you know, remote work, figure out how to process all the applications, how to deal with intake. I gave them kind of a six month um, free zone. So what I'm doing is I'm adding a six month, like COVID relief timeline. (laughs) I love these timelines. So if I look at a CEC application and I see six months, if I'm going to file a mandamus, then I'm going to want to see at least 12 months of delay. Yeah. And what about, like you'd mentioned earlier that the outside Canada visa specific files, like a scenario in like, I'm thinking India, um, where I've seen through eight, like just through a tip stats that uh, like the, the New Delhi post receives by far the most a tip requests. I assume they also then receive the most mandamus demand letters based on nothing but that assumption that if they get the most ATIPs, they probably get the most mandamus demand letters. If a visa post or the VAC is closed, would you tell a client, you know what, don't bother? Or would you proceed? I mean, I'm still proceeding um, in doing a demand letter for those files, but for my outside Canada applicants or my, you know, in this, in this scenario, like you gave my, um, application that's sitting in New Delhi, I'm not seeing the success or the movement that I am for the in-Canada application. So, you know, just because the visa office is at reduced capacity, often what I'm getting is an email back saying, you know, we're working at about a 10% capacity. Um, and again, for the first six months after the pandemic started, I think that's a completely reasonable explanation. But if we go back to the test of the mandamus, It's not just that an explanation is given by the government. It's how reasonable it is at this time. So like Deanna said, there's an expectation that if you're at the visa office and you haven't figured out how to get those files moving electronically, or you haven't figured out how to get your staff working remotely, that's not on my client anymore. That's on the government to justify the delay. And I don't quite get it considering that like, that's the entire rationale behind GCMS. Like, they implemented GCMS with the specific intention that they could move, like it's the global case management system. The entire pitch behind this was that they were expending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in order so that they could move the work to where there were bodies that could do the work anywhere in their global network, you Mm -hmm. know? And so, yeah, I get it. Delhi is closed, but, you know, so then move the work to London, you know? Did you say tens and of so thousands of dollars? Hundreds of thousands. I'm really bad at big numbers. I think you yeah. can change the thousand to million. For- <laughs> okay, there you go. Do that. And so, but like, um, so, and all, like the vast majority, if not all of those applications were filed electronically, you know? And so um, like the work permit applications, like how many of those were actually filed on paper, Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as if the, you know, um, so, so I'm just, I'm perplexed by the idea, like even stuff that was like, I mean, I have applications that were, um, that were, uh, sent back by federal court and that are now back at the visa office. And like, don't tell me that those don't, those don't exist on paper. And now somebody who's got like an application that's been sent back to the visa office. And now you're telling me that you can't decide it. So somebody who's, um, 
who's now gonna you're gonna jeopardize their Canadian job offer because you can't make a decision on the application like that's going to be dramatically prejudicing this client because you can't make a decision on the application um uh, yeah that's uh that's a real problem I I think you're right though I think that's that's been the problem with the global case management system is that there are some serious limitations to the electronic processing of immigration applications, which is, you know, it does some things really well and other things like the actual movement of an electronic entire complete electronic file, just the capacity of GCMS just seems so limited in that regard. So I think like if we go back to the budget from 2021 then it's been, I think, almost $430 million that has been allocated to modernize the entire GCMS system. And supposedly, this is what is going to speed up and truly make our immigration system into something that is electronic processing, where Deanna, like you said, New Delhi can push the file over to Accra or London to process if there's capacity there. It's something what that do you we mean by that? Like, what like, is the limitation? Like, why can't they do that? Wasn't that the whole point? I think there's got to be like, I mean, the only evidence or inference I think you can make that there's some limitation with GCMS is that all these new pilot programs that they're doing aren't through GCMS. Like the TRPR pathway is its own portal. Um, the, all the online PMP application paper ones, but what paper ones that you just upload. They're all their own portals that aren't connected to GCMS. So I don't, this is something we'll probably learn in the months and years ahead, why, what it was with GCMS that caused them to create separate portals. Right. Other than that, like, I assume there must be something there. What I don't understand is like, if I can understand if they're saying, look, we can't in New Delhi or Beijing have officers working from home due to concerns over data security. I don't know, and maybe it has happened and they just, you know, they're a bit opaque as to what's going on. But like, I don't understand then why the officers haven't come back to Canada to process files here, leaving some skeletal staff, I guess, to actually like, because we still have to affix visas um, Mm. to do that. But which is a whole other separate why we need like in a world of ETAs, actual physical visas, but. But you notice that, uh, yeah, that is another whole question. I mean, they don't do it now with the PR visas for the most part, We, you know, or the COPRs, they realized that they needed to retire those and we've gone to an electronic format for landing. But most of the, like, when you see work permit decisions uh, uh, from Beijing and from New Delhi, most of those are being made out of CPCO now, like out of the case processing center in Ottawa. So when you get those overseas decisions, if you're judicially reviewing them, they're actually being made in Ottawa and not in Delhi or Beijing. So again, like, like so, you know, if that's a decision, if that's an, a shortcoming with GCMS, it's still like clearly the decision has been able to be made in Ottawa for the vast majority of those applications. So again, it makes me not understand how this delay yeah. issue is arising. Well, the other thing the pandemic exposed is how reliant we are on the vax. Um, Like I remember at the start of the pandemic, back when, you know, the science said that border restrictions were abysmal and don't work before the science pivoted. 
they Canada like indirectly closed its borders because all the vax in China were closed. Mm. And um, now that in countries where like even if an application is approved, if the VAC in Brazil is, for example, is closed, um, I haven't seen any mandamus. Actually, and this just here's a quick. I haven't seen actually any mandamus published decisions since the start of the pandemic. So what do you think like the lack of mandamus decisions means? Does it mean settlements, they settlements, don't get lead? Does it mean they don't get settlements? Like because I've been stunned that there hasn't been one um, mm-hmm. so far. I think the precedential value of those decisions would be shattering. I don't think that they want to see any of these reported decisions. Yeah, I think you're right, Deanna. And I think, I don't think before the fall that I'm not sure what I can't speak for other lawyers, but I don't think before the fall, a lot of people were filing mandamus applications. Um, So even if someone did, let's say file in the fall, it's probably just working its way through the federal court now. But also, I think that if the federal court were to have to report that, you know, COVID is fine, but it's not enough, uh, that would be colossally bad for the department. Um, Yeah. Although, on the other hand, depending on the judge, if it went the other way, where it was, there's a pandemic, and that's basically the decision, uh, that would be brutal for applicants. That's yeah. Um, I just, I feel like if I were counsel for the department, I'm not sure I would want to try my luck at that. Yeah. Not not in the not in the post Vavilov era. I I don't know that I would want to try it. And I think to me, and again, maybe I'm naive, but I, I don't think I would want to try the technology argument that they can't make them work from home, citing <laughs> privacy concerns. I, you know, I mean, again, um doing this thing about like um, you know, they can't have them work at home, uh, citing privacy concerns, like I mean, this coming from the department, like you know, ESDC doesn't want to use email. Um, They're afraid that email is not sufficiently secure. Like, I mean, I just like, again, like private firms have managed to cover client solicitor privilege issues. You know, they're, they're, they've met, we've all managed to figure out how to not use US airspace in terms of managing our client data. We figured all these technology things issue issues out without um, infringing, you know, client security um, to our satisfaction and to the satisfaction of our law societies. I just, I, I kind of wonder whether or not uh, they would be able to satisfy the courts that this degree yeah. of security was necessary. I don't know. I'm not sure I agree. Oh. No? No, I think-, I, I think a judge would be very reluctant when faced with an argument of the health of our employees mm-hmm. um, to order, uh, regardless of whether that, there are ways to safely do it, which we don't, unless they were to open up all their processes. I think kind of the same way that the government's been really deferential on the um, the travel, like the quarantine hotel decisions. Like they seem, I think they would be very, very deferential to the government doing what it needs to do to protect the health of their employees mm-hmm. during a pandemic. Um, and it would be, it's it's one of those things where like it would be hard to argue without the written evidence what what we all know which is that some applications are still getting processed there seems to have been an abandonment of first come first serve files 
presumably can be transferred anywhere. Like we all know this, but getting the act, it's kind of like in a ministerial relief mandamus, like we, what we all know versus what can be demonstrable absent an ATIP result to show all these stats and procedures um, when weighed against the health of uh, immigration officials, I think would be a tough, mm. I'm not saying it couldn't be done, but I think it would be a tough, uh, I think it would be the tougher decision for the judge to make. So what do you think? Like, oh, can I jump in here, Deanna? So Please, yeah. I feel like if we did have to, as counsel for the applicant, you know, justify what we're saying, I think we have a really great example with looking at what the Immigration and Refugee Board has done during COVID. They've done, obviously, the confidentiality and privacy of those claims. Like, you can't really get a file that is deserving of more privacy and confidentiality. All of those members are working virtually from home and doing hearings. So I think that's a great example to point to if there is concerns about privacy with these officers, et cetera. And I think the second thing is what the IRB has done really well is moving files around between different cities. They have reallocated their resources to doing a virtual hearing over teams via Calgary for the backlog in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And shockingly, the IRB has been that kind of one program area that there actually hasn't been a lot of delays. So I think when we're looking at other immigration applications. And if we do start to litigate more of these mandamus applications, it can be really helpful to bring in other examples for the judge to kind of, you know, explain what, whether the respondent's explanation for that delay is reasonable or not. I totally agree with that. Yeah. We'll see when the, uh, if there are any published uh, decisions, I've been surprised by the lack of them. Um, then it could be they all settle or I don't think it's not a case where they aren't getting leave. So I assume they're all settling because one of the ironies of mandamus is the longer, like eventually there may just be an act. Like this has always been part of the weird part about mandamus is, oh, there's been movement. Was this because of the mandamus or is it like, oh, that it was just that file's turn, Um, which is always like just something you'll never know unless a visa officer DOJ explicitly tells you. Mm-hmm. Some of them are pretty clear that, that it's just that something got missed or lost or something. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I agree with what you're saying, uh, Adrian, that I think that there have been a lot of good examples of innovation. Um, I think um, the IRB has presented some um, for sure and the ability of certain um, like within the tribunals of their ability to pivot and how to maintain confidentiality um, while still dealing with backlogs Um, you know there certainly was a span of time where they were really reeling and there was no movement um, but then all of a sudden, just there was a real uptake and uh, real innovation in terms of like, okay, uh, there's like a new, and I think just even the way that um, that lawyers have had to pivot to, and I think some of the um, kind of new thinking about, um, you know, how to, how to appear before the board 
uh, online and uh, how to uh, how to do that sort of thing. I think uh, I think that there's been a lot of good that has come out of some of that too. And so um, I, I think putting that into a mandamus type application and saying, you know, we get that this has been super challenging, but uh, that in order to make sure that the process remained fair, that uh, for everybody, that uh, those challenges needed to be out. Um, undertaken in processing as well mm-hmm. and I think that, that would have made it challenging for the for the for the department to show that they couldn't have maintained the safety and the well-being of their employees while still maintaining a fair process um, and reasonable processing times for for applicants so it'll be very interesting to see if that does come through but I think in the meantime I think there will be a lot of settlements where the delay has been unreasonable. Yeah, I mean so I'm perfecting my first application record on a mandamus next week. So um I'm really looking forward to getting a response from DOJ and seeing whether, you know, this moves forward or not. Hmm. Interesting. And have you done mandamus and all sorts of different types of applications? Like as there being a cross section? So mostly spousal sponsorships Mm. um, in Canada, outside Canada, and then um, everything under express entry, CC, federal skilled trades and FSW. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's primarily what it's been. I did talk with a colleague about doing a class action mandamus when um, IRCC wasn't holding eligibility interviews for refugees to get their work permit. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. We did talk about that back in January, but in, I think in February they started doing eligibility interviews, oddly enough, in the third wave. But yeah. I was having clients that were getting their hearing before they were getting their work permit, um, you know, and waiting for That's crazy 12 months some of them being, you know, nurses and could have potentially worked on the front line, but didn't have a work permit. So I think that's, you know, that's definitely a black mark on the delays that happened and why refugees were not given a work permit and that ability to work and were kind of forced to go on social assistance for a year. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. I mean, the missed opportunities could almost like during COVID could almost be its own podcast. Like I don't understand. I think it was New Zealand. Uh, was automatically extending everyone I could be wrong on this but if I am wrong it's what we should have done which is that like just extending everyone on open work permits like it blew my mind that resources were being allocated to process and closed work permit applications during this pandemic when like they could have just blanket issued open work permits to people who were here I know Um, I was talking about this subject of the visitor to worker policy. You remember the one that came out over under COVID? And um, I was speaking to a journalist about this and it was, it was mostly about like how unfortunately um, under publicized that program was and also how unfortunately limited it was. And, um, you know, I, I've got a case that I'm just bringing to, to federal court where um, somebody was denied for it. And it was like, I, I, I don't really understand why they were denied. And I think it was perhaps because they had worked without authorization, but it was just like, come on, you know, like um, somebody who was working in a healthcare setting. And it's just sort of like, oh, come on. Like, it's just sort of um, talking about those missed opportunities. 
I mean, I think the media has done a really exceptional job in kind of highlighting the separation of family members who are overseas. I've seen a lot of kind of stories about, um, you know, protected persons who have included their kids on their application that have been waiting for three years to be reunited. And um, yeah, it just seemed like a really, when we're talking about missed opportunities, it seems like a really odd policy to keep overseas family members separated from their Canadian family, particularly then when the Canadian citizen or permanent resident is then traveling back to their home country to see their family member and then getting on a plane and coming back to Canada. Like if you're advising Canadians not to travel, the reason they're traveling, they don't want to have to get on a plane. Yeah. Their child is overseas. They're going to make that call. So I found it a really odd policy to not speed up the processing of overseas family members during the pandemic. Yeah. Combined with all the other, you know, best interests of the child kind of international kind of obligation type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But that was all the like, again, just the kind of surprised how while the department was innovative, it was weird how they also like were just business as usual in so many things. Uh, when they could have been a lot more, you know, mm-hmm. proactive. Yeah, just even in Canada, work permits for like spousal applicants. Like, why did those ones take a nosedive? Like, ten months to get a work permit for in Canada applicants on spousals. Like, just why? Just why? Like, I just don't understand. What, like, those went from four months to like a year, and some of them, like, I had a couple of cases where um they granted them an open work permit the same day they granted them permanent residency at the one-year point like rather than even just refunding them their money they like took their 255 (laughs) dollars and granted them a work permit on on the same day they landed them after 12 or 14 months it's like it's just like a dick move you know um yeah, it's you know, a sweet day for that person yeah exactly um and so um but you know to have that spouse here not able to work for like a year um it just you know in the middle of a pandemic and then you know it kind of it, it was just it, it just like I just couldn't understand um and then at the same time you know launching all of these in Canada landing opportunities for people who were in Canada. It just seemed like, um, it just seemed very disorganized policy. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, the big one for me, I've said it a few times is just when they were so short on resources and officers overseas, why everyone didn't just get an email who was in Canada saying your status is extended on an open work permit till December 2020 and then June 2021 and then December 2021 and all those officers could have processed other files yeah Um, I don't know why that decision yeah I mean it's one of those like we'll learn in the months and years ahead Mm -hmm. uh, what went on behind the scenes and why decisions were and weren't made to do certain things Well, it seems like there was this real trepidation of not wanting to grant work permits, like saying that the government understands the value of immigration to the Canadian economy, needing to rebuild the economy. Like there's so much of this policy speak on this, Mm -hmm. but practically speaking, like you said, Steve, like not making, you know, 
standardized decisions around work permits to allow people to contribute to the economy. Oh, mm. there's like a yeah. lot of gaslighting that uh, there's just a lot of gaslighting. I feel yeah. like, um, like I saw the minister on Twitter was tweeting about, you know, he retweeted something about how great it was for Venezuelans who left Venezuela, came to Canada, settled in Canada as asylum seekers. And this is a great thing. And it's like, your department, since you've become minister, refuses like 65% of TRV applications for Venezuelans. Like the gaslighting is unbelievable. It's so yeah. true. Yeah, for sure. But, and then like, I mean, I, this one's my favorite one. I just, it's my thing is that like, uh, you're not processing those caregiver applications through the, you know, those pathways that they launched through, you know, in, 20, in June, 2019. But then you create those TR to PR pathways and you include caregivers in both of those Mm -hmm. essential worker categories. And those ones are processing within a few months. So it's sort of like, so are people supposed to file, like the people that are earning like $12 per hour, are they supposed to file a new application in a different category, spend Mm -hmm. another thousand dollars that they don't have just to get attention, you know, like, um, and so you know, it's sort of like, so now we're being neglected and now we're essential. Like, it's just, again, like, it's just the, um, there's a real inconsistency. It's very hard to get, to put your finger on what's the actual plan. Yeah, I think they realized they had an issue because the, uh, as soon as the TRPR was announced, I think it was followed up with, whoa, whoa, caregivers who've already applied. Don't worry. We're, we're going to, we're, we're going to expedite your stuff. It's because they never separated out. Yeah. Well, it's because they didn't separate out the overseas from the in Canada people. And so they just didn't have any way of distinguishing, but they really wanted to like, we want those, but we don't want those, you know? And so like, uh, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a conundrum. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I think we've covered mandamus off. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Uh, now we're just in our rants. Session. Now we're just in rants. <laughs> and I'm sure people are now saying, we're doing um, part one of missed opportunities. Yeah, yeah exactly. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure we're going to have, uh, I'm sure our case managers and assistants and everyone are like, okay, it's time to stop delaying going back to work. Let's. Uh... <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to file so, a mandamus against us. Exactly. <laughs> and on that note have a good one it was a real pleasure to have you yeah thank you so much adrian for sharing your insight how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 